Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. As we get started, I've got uh, some, some praise and some updates to share with this church family. You might have heard over the last six months or so that, that as a church, we have a cost-sharing amount that is due uh, because of all the infrastructure going up at our farm property. Hopefully, you've seen it. Uh, there's all these streets and sidewalks and utilities being moved and all that kind of stuff to support the new neighborhood that's going in there. And And because those are our roads and our sidewalks and our utilities that are getting moved and benefit us, we have a cost-sharing amount of that to the tune of $1.1 million. And we saw that coming. We've been talking about it as a church uh, across campus planning for this for months. And because of that, because we've been talking about it, planning ahead of it, and because people like you and me give through the ministry of this church, I get to update you that that $1.1 million amount is paid in full without having to take a loan or do a campaign or anything. So, whoo, that's a big bill when you get that email invoice. Okay, but uh, man, so thankful for, for how God is kind of positioning us, that, that that is taken care of. We know our infrastructure is done, it's ready, and, and so we get to kind of best be positioned to serve the community, this church family, and the world around us as God has called us to. So on the backs of people stepping up to serve and stepping up to give and stepping up to get baptized and see lives being transformed, it is a great time to be a part of this church family. God is moving in powerful ways. And kind of maybe strangely on the backs of that, today we're going to be talking about the beginning of the end of the beginning. It's Mark 14, we'll be in verse 43 for starters. We'd love for you to grab your Bibles, your Bible apps. If you see people squirming around right now, it's because they're grabbing their Bibles, no checking football anymore. Um, And so I love it when people are taking notes, when people find stuff that's that's engaging and, and I can work on this when I'm reading the Bible on my own from now on. So a little bit harder to do that on a cell phone, but... But if you don't have a Bible, on your way out, grab one for free, including Spanish translations. We'd love to provide one for you. So here we go. Chapter 14, verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, in other words, right now we know this is just right on the backs of what Pastor Donnie was talking about last week. Right after the Garden of Gethsemane, right as all of that was happening, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. So first, from this first like section of this passage, I want us to see how Mark, the author, is referring to Judas. There's some emotional tone or emotional language that I'm seeing here. He doesn't just say Judas came and did this. He says, Judas, one of the 12. 
He was one of us. He was one part of the closest, most powerful small group that the world has ever seen. He was one of the 12. And then Mark turns and calls him the betrayer. I get it. I'd be heated too. This man was one of us. And he betrayed us all. But have you ever wondered why Judas was needed in the first place? I mean, it's not like Jesus isn't a recognizable, very prominent figure. Why couldn't those trying to stop him just snatch him on their own? Why do they need Judas in the first place? Well, a couple of things for us to understand here. First, it's nighttime. They need to do this at nighttime under the cover of darkness. Jesus and his disciples, like many, they were probably cloaked. And there's no natural lighting, especially here outside of the city, across the valley in Gethsemane, on the, on the valley opposite the town or the city. And so finding out exactly who he was and where Jesus was necessitated someone on the inside. Secondly, Jerusalem was massively crowded during the holiday season of Passover, swelling to like four or five times its normal size. And these guys didn't want to get the wrong person. They didn't want the guy that they needed to, to slip through their fingers, and so they needed to know who is Jesus, which one is he, and they didn't want to start a mob or create some kind of chaotic scene. And so that leads us to the third and probably the biggest aspect of why they needed Judas. It was because of their fear of the people. Numerous times we're told that the religious leaders did things or didn't do things out of the fear of the crowds, the fear of the people. See, they got all their power from the people, and if the people turned on them, they'd lose it all. Or maybe even start a mob, which Rome would indiscriminately squash, and no one wanted that. So that's why this betrayal took place in darkness outside the city, farther away from the risk of a mob. So with that and what we're about to read, I want us to start to catch how people all over this account are doing things illogical and frantic and chaotic. So far we have one guy betraying his friend to the enemy. That's Judas. And then we have these people coming up against this religious figure, the kingdom of God, with clubs and swords, that'd be all the people from the scribes and the elders and the chief priests. And as we're going to continue reading, we're going to see even more of these chaotic, desperate, frantic actions. Let's keep reading. Verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So we're going to add to the strange, chaotic, frantic, and desperate responses here three more. There's an effort to defend the kingdom and movement of God by force. That's Peter. There's fleeing Jesus in betrayal. All the disciples do that. 
And then there's a young man running away naked. All told, that's five occasions of strange, chaotic, frantic responses here in this scene. I want us to remember that because you need to start today with the picture in your mind that everybody, everybody's doing something crazy. Everybody's running around like a chicken with their head cut off. This is chaos. This is desperation. Everybody is doing something illogical. As it pertains to the ear slicing incident, Mark's pretty vague. You read this in Mark and he just says, and, and someone tried to stab somebody and cut off his ear. So anyways, and he continues with his story and we don't hear a lot about it, but I found it interesting reading a little bit th further into this that the type of sword that Peter would have had was not a sword that was used for like slicing, but more jabbing. In other words, this wasn't just a slightly missed swing. This was a close call after a stab to kill a guy. In other words, in Peter's mind, the best way to serve Jesus in this moment was to have a slain body laying at his feet. Let's say he succeeds. Does Peter really think that a slain man lying dead on the ground is what Jesus needs most in this moment? Does Peter really think, this is where I'm getting this chaotic, frantic, illogical, does Peter really think that the one that has the power to calm storms and bring the dead to life really needs his assassin skills? And wait a second, how do we know it's Peter? Matthew, Luke, and John, the other three gospels, they all give us a lot more information to help fill in the gaps of this story. For instance, they tell us it's Peter that does the attacking. They tell us the name of the man that Peter attacked. It's Malchus, whole other story in and of itself there. And then they tell us that Jesus' response to Peter was a sharp rebuke. Kind of like, what makes you think I need defending, Peter? So Peter tries to step up in defense of Jesus, and Jesus corrects him. I want you to lock that away. We're thinking about the emotions and the reactions of all kinds of people in this story. How would you feel if you're Peter? All stuff that Mark chooses to leave out. Or to say it another way, he doesn't include it because it doesn't serve Mark's point. So Mark's inclusion of the Peter attack at all and the fact that he just kind of leaves it as, as a symptom of chaotic surroundings seems to suggest that, that Mark is highlighting that everybody's doing something crazy. Everybody's doing something chaotic. It's not important who did what. It's just everywhere you look, there's desperation and chaos. Everyone's doing something illogical. Everyone except Jesus. He's the victim here. He's the one that's betrayed here. He's the one that's gonna be arrested. They're coming at him with clubs and swords and the only guy in the entire scene that knows exactly what's going on and is under full control is him. For instance, I'm sure the naked guy kind of stood out to you when I read it, right? What's with the naked guy? It's, it's two verses within some of the most power-packed hours this world has ever seen. And it's only included here in Mark's gospel. <laughs> so what's the deal with the naked guy? 
Well, Mark is a masterful storyteller. We've seen that throughout the gospel as we've traveled through it for over a year now. Mark is a masterful storyteller, so including it here is for some good purpose, and it's not comedy, not at this point in the story. So why is it here? One possibility is that it could be Mark himself. Mark's inclusion to the whole story and, and omitting his name out of sheer humility. I'm not gonna mention my name, but, but I was there. That's one possibility. Another possibility that I really like a lot is that there's an overlap between this naked figure in the garden here and the nakedness of Adam and Eve back in the garden originally. Both times betrayed, left ashamed, and naked and vulnerable in their rejection of the Lord. Could be. Or it could just be a young man recently and hurriedly following Jesus, hurriedly because wearing such a fine, expensive linen would have been indicative of an impulsive, unprepared response at the scene of someone that had financial means. If that's the case, then it would be illustrating that there was no follower of Jesus, long-standing or recent, well-off or desperate, no one stood by Jesus in this last hour. I'm deciding to trust the masterful author that the identity of the person in this part and also with the sword slicing part, the identity of the person is not the point. The total desertion and betrayal of Jesus from everybody around him, that's the point. Jesus foretold of this scattering of his friends back in Mark chapter 14, verses. 27, and God saw it long ago, Zechariah 13, verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Unfortunately, this is characteristic about how God's people always respond to him. It's sin. Like it or not, God is used to it. Everyone is desperate and frantic and runs away falls away. All of us fall short, Paul says elsewhere. Everyone scatters. Let the matter be settled in your mind and in my mind. We would have scattered too. And what's Jesus's response? So far, I've wanted to make sure that we set the stage that no matter where you look, everywhere there's people running around, chaotic, frantic, everyone except Jesus. These were their final moments with their master. And today's lesson is found in Jesus' response. With chaos and desertion and desperation all around him, Jesus' response is right in line with what we encountered last week in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let the purpose of the Lord be done. In this week's passage, he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. In other words, all of this is as it needs to be. Jesus has predicted this moment. Jesus knows that this moment is coming. None of this surprises Jesus. It doesn't make it any easier for him to bear the desertion of his friends. Don't, don't hear me saying that, but, but hear me saying that this is all according to his good purpose. He knows what his life is headed towards. The cross. That's his mission. 
He's been intentionally heading straight for it and beyond that to Good Friday so that you and I don't just look back on this gladiator, braveheart-like hero that could stand when nobody else around him could. No, this is God. And he does stand when no one else can to do for us what we could never do in the cross. This is the beginning of the end of the beginning. It's over? Yeah. No more time with his disciples. No more teaching. No more reaching the masses. No more healing. He's in their hands now. And things will never be the same again. It reminds me, it's funny, the things that we distinctly remember, but, but anytime I hear that phrase, things will never be the same again, I go all the way back to 9-11 and what Mr. Bull, my history teacher, said to us. We were in high school and, and we were watching glued to the TVs in horror. And I'll never forget, he turned to the class with tears in his eyes and just says, your world is never gonna be the same. This isn't just a significant point. It's a point at which things change and they can never go back. Hey, being a parent, I am well aware that there comes a time where those days are gone. I'll never have a kid in a cute elementary play anymore. I don't get to come home and and pick up my kids and toss them around like they're stuffed animals. They're too big for that now. I think I have pictures, it's gonna be hard to see, but I was just walking through the house the other day. This is a collection of pictures of, of us with the kids at Disneyland and all the characters when they were young. And I look at this picture and I go, we may end up at Disneyland again someday, but those days are over. You can't go back. That's a loss of sorts. That's, that's a real pivot point, a real reflection, and I know many of us can relate to that, and some of you young parents are really afraid of that, but wisdom tells us not to stay there. Ecclesiastes 7 reads, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Oh, that's good. That's convicting. Better is the end of a thing because at that point you have realized relationships, you have realized memories and values and time spent with people and not just the potential. Biblically speaking, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Better is looking back on something and and embracing the value and memories of it than at the very beginning. And you and I might naturally go, I disagree. (laughs) I don't see it that way. I say it all the time. I wish my kids stopped growing. I wish they could just stay at the cute little seasons of life that they find themselves in. But that's never an option really given to me. Time only flows in one direction. You can't stop it. You can't reverse it. We might feel different, but that's because this isn't natural wisdom. This is biblical, divine wisdom. Being crestfallen 
being mournful over the loss and the passing of those days, that's okay, that's good. It shows us that there was great value there. But it's wisdom that makes us rise. And it's wisdom that allows us to reflect on the value that we had and move forward. In the context of today's passage, Jesus knows. And and the, the gospel writer Mark, he knows, and we can know looking back that all of this, the life and ministry of Jesus, it had to end because it was just the beginning. It had to end in order for God's great broader mission to happen. The phase towards the cross. The beginning of the end of the beginning didn't make the desertion of the disciples any easier. It's not going to make reflecting and looking back on missing those days, it's not going to make it easier. The beginning of the end of the beginning didn't make Good Friday easier, but it is what makes it good. I want to do a little spin-off application here, talking about the end of a season, the loss of those days. Even with the struggle that we, we may conceptually find the disciples beginning to gra- grasp, because they don't know it now. Right now, they're running around all crazy like chickens with their heads cut off, but, but eventually, they're going to look back and realize they never had another moment with Jesus, not this side of the resurrection. And of course, I hope we can all agree that changed everything. And I think this spinoff is applicable for those of us, not just who have lost a season of life, but those of us who have loss and grief or the end of a season of life or perhaps the loss of a team or a political candidate or a political cause. You saw earlier one of the kids up here wearing an unmentionable jersey, and maybe that brought up some, some emotions in you. Think about, and I, and I know this is kind of making light of this, but I want us to do this for a second. Think about how San Francisco must be feeling right now. I, I, this isn't a joke. I'm not going to go throw salt on the wound. I want us to think about, let's say you're not a, just a fan. Let, let, let's say you're a part of the team. You're an owner. Uh, you have a friend that, that has been working hard all year long on that team. I want us to think about how the loss of that kind of season must feel. Because I think it's relevant to how Peter and the other disciples felt. You can only fathom that, that did you see the picture of one of the Niners players sitting on the bench with all the confetti coming down around him? I guarantee the thoughts in his mind, the words that he might have verbalized were the same kind of words that Peter and the disciples would verbalize. Totally different situations, but but bear with me. How could this happen? I won't let this happen. It can't be over. All the time and effort and energy and passion we poured into this, for what? This isn't how I saw it going. We had hoped. We had dreamed. What now? I think we can relate to that. I think there's a lot of us that can relate to the ending, the disappointment, the sorrow 
of something that we had seen going another way. I guarantee this is why Peter must have all these emotions of, why are you stopping me, Jesus? I'm defending you. This isn't how this is supposed to go down. I've lost both mothers in my life. I lost my mom from cancer back in 2007, and I lost my mother-in-law from cancer 10 years later in 2017. And I'm bummed that my mom has never gotten to meet my kids. And I'm bummed that there's a lot of things that that my mother-in-law will not be able to, to enjoy with my kids. Those are real losses. That's sorrow right there. And I don't think the Bible or the heart of God that we see in the life of Jesus just wants us to to get over those things. Move on. No. No, it's okay, it's good, it's healthy for us to sit back and remember the value of those things. To grieve. To reflect. And we had thought it was gonna go differently. We had plans. That's real loss right there. Grief can be the price that we pay for love. Grief can be the price that we pay for love. Pastor Donnie said it last weekend that believers need to be able to face inescapable suffering with virtue. Holding sorrow and bringing it to God. And so the Bible, especially the life of Christ, is full of how you and I are supposed to face and sit with grief. Never devaluing it. Never being reductionalistic. Always honoring the complexity. But here's the greatest thing about being a believer. One of the things we heard from from those kids standing here and reminding us that God, one of the names of God is El Roy, the God that sees me. And when God sees us, he doesn't just look upon us. He knows us. He, He is intimately involved with us. He is for us. And God's kingdom has a very peculiar way of taking things and flipping them around, making all things new. Wiping away every tear. This is why this is all so critically important. Because Jesus' ministry, his life, and even his resurrected presence, all of that had to end because it was the beginning so that something else could begin. It's the beginning of the end of the beginning. And to make sure you know how how respectful and how personal we are in helping people deal with their grief and any emotions that this might bring up for you, I wanna let you know in advance that we're gonna have our prayer team up here after the service. If this is hitting a nerve for you and you just want someone to come alongside of you and pray for you, this is the awesome ministry that this prayer team extends to our church family. Come forward after the service and allow yourself to be prayed over and supported if you're anywhere in that process of grief, and that's a good step for you. I also know for some of us, we need more. It's not that prayer isn't enough. We need more and more of it constantly 
surrounded by people in our lives that'll help us move forward. So I also have information on a group that our Fort Collins campus facilitates called Grief Share. If you want people to come alongside of you in your grieving and your loss and, and sorting through that, we'd love to support you in that as well. Because listen, once again, a biblical perspective on loss is not trying to make it easier. Loss is hard. Jesus wept. Jesus cries out to the Father. Gethsemane and Good Friday were real and hard. But here's why I called this one of the best parts about being, believer, being a believer. Even grief and sorrow will have an end. Let me say that again. Even grief and sorrow will have an end. In our worldly experience, it seems like it'll never be gone. It'll never be done with. And Jesus promises us, Revelation 21, one of the greatest chapters of hope and promise in the Bible, that there will come a day, Jesus says, where death and loss and mourning is no more, and I will wipe away every tear. This is a promise given to us from our God that even grief and sorrow will have an end. God's kingdom has a peculiar way of flipping things around, making all things somehow new, wiping away every tear. We see it in the story of Joseph where he tells his brothers the wicked, cruel, horrible things that they did to him. You think you have a dysfunctional family? Read about his story. Even all that, he says, you intended for bad, evil, and God intended it for good. God has a way of flipping around the not just seemingly bad things, but actually bad and making them good. Ruth experienced a pivotal life change because the plans of God were somehow better than any plans that she could come up with. She had to die to those plans, let them end so that she could step into God's plan for her future. The nation of Israel had to be destroyed. Political realities and efforts had to be dashed so that all the puzzle pieces of history might be put together to pave the way for the virgin birth of the Messiah. That's all real loss. It's all real endings and new beginnings. I miss my mom and my mother-in-law. And yet, because I know that they were both believers and lovers of Jesus, their season of suffering is over. There was a beginning of the end. And it was just the beginning for them. And because they know it was just the beginning, they would want me to rise up and step into the new chapter, the next chapter. I'm not sad for them. I'm jealous of the reality that they get to enjoy. Their suffering's over. I'm sad for me, and that's okay. And everyone grieves differently. In reflection on this, earlier this week, Ashley had shared with a group that, that it's like people respond to grief and, and pace of grief as uniquely as fingerprints. We respond to grief in different paces and in different ways, but there can be a distinction in grieving with hope and grieving without hope. And believers, that's what we're called to see in this. 
That's what we're called to say. It's not the end. And in fact, that's what we're gonna sing about in a little bit. That we're gonna walk through the story of, of Jesus's life in song in a, such a way that goes, there, there was a time where people called him rebel teacher. And that time's over. There was a time where, where he would be betrayed and that happened and it's done. It was the beginning of the end. There was a time where Good Friday happened in all of its sorrow, in all of its pain and suffering. And I can promise you that it didn't make Good Friday easy. But you and I get to look back on that and we get to go, yeah, Good Friday is hard. Loss is hard. Grief is hard. The loss of that season is hard. But it's not the end. So Jesus, if if you had to die, and even your resurrected presence on this earth had to come to an end, it all had to end so that what could begin? I want to invite you into prayer with me over that question right there. God, you experienced the beginning of the end, knowing that it was just the beginning. You see the picture, you see the stories, you see the plan of God, even through the pain. And that's what we see because it screams at us, the pain and loss and suffering that we feel. But help us see through looking through your eyes, God, that it's not the end. That some things may need to end and that chapter may need to stop so that something new can begin. And that there will come a day Our hope is secured that there will come a day where even grief and sorrow and loss are no more. Attach my soul to that hope, God. Beyond mere feelings, help me believe it. I pray for anybody and everybody in this church family experiencing loss, loss of a season, loss of expectations, things that we had hoped, loss of loved ones, loss or grief in any way, God, that that we would cast our gaze to the God that sees us and know that with you, it's not over. You have our great hope and our assurance. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, For joining serving opportunities and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org slash connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.